Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Hello and welcome to Nightlight, everybody. I am really excited about today's show. Um, I have an amazing guest who has not yet called in, but is on his way to calling in. So I want to tell you a little bit about Hugh Newman before he arrives. He's an explorer, a megalithomaniac, and author of Earth Grids, The Secret Pattern of Gaia's Sacred Sites, co-author of Giants on Record, and his new book is called Stone Circles. He's a regular guest on History Channel's Ancient Aliens and Search for the Lost Giants. He has articles published in Atlantis Rising, which is a U.S. magazine, New Dawn, which is an Australian magazine, and numerous other publications. As well as organizing the Megalithomania Conference and Tours, he's spoken at events in the U.K., Malta, France, Peru, Egypt, Bosnia, and North America. He lives in Glastonbury, England. So, um, you know, we have to give him a little bit of time. I just got the flash that he was that he was at least um, online. So I'm pretty sure he's trying to figure out how to get in. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Patrick and I met him in 2011 uh, at a megalithomania conference. And uh, that was the conference that we presented our uh, documentary, Secrets of the Stones. I have to tell you, um, these conferences are probably one of the most exciting things I've ever been to. It had a trim, it had a plethora of amazing people who 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 are involved in the megaliths around the world, and you know the more the the more that we hear about all of the research that all of these people are doing, the more we become aware of how little we truly know about the Earth's history. Uh, it it to me is is mind mind blowing and staggering the information that it's not so much that it's been withheld although i sometimes think you know there is that that element of it especially when it comes to the giants and the little people and 
all of those guys. But it 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 just to me is is amazing that these structures have been there forever, and we really, really, really don't know anything about them. Uh, when you when you look at the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau, you know it's been standing there for thousands and thousands of years, and and the debate is now you know amazing. Is it 12,000 years old? Is it 50,000 years old? And then it's like, holy mackerel, nobody really knows. Okay, so welcome to the show, Hugh. I was running out of banter. (laughs) Good timing then, good timing. Absolutely. I was talking about um, the two books that you've written, which I have read. And um, I have to tell you that the Stone Circle book especially fascinated me in the, in the, you know, they're they're not only just in England, but they're all over the world, and people aren't paying attention to them. I think my biggest complaint here is that there are so many um, so many hints of antiquity that we are ignoring and then just knocking down without paying attention to them and trying to learn what they mean and and where they came from. No, no I agree. I mean, I agree. I think that's what one of the the big oversights of of just megalithic culture in general, but especially stone circles, the fact that they seem to be everywhere. Um, and they date back to a much earlier age than people realize, even examples in North America, up in new England, potentially. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's one of those universal symbols that people, you know, obviously work with the circle. Um, but the earliest examples really go back to like 12,000 years ago at Gebekli Tepe, uh, an amazing site in Southeast Turkey. Um, but yeah, I mean, often many of them just, I mean, in Britain, some of them are small to, and, and other countries, so they get destroyed, they get built over, people forget about them uh, and just take them for granted. So it's, yeah, it's one of the issues. Well, Go Blackly Tappy is, is fascinating in that, um, it, to my knowledge, that it, it was at one point intentionally covered up and then dug up again. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, originally it was built around twelve thousand years ago, uh, and there were, there were multiple circular arrangements of freestanding stones with um, these T-shaped pillars, often with mainly with two in the centre as well. And they had a retaining wall, kind of holding the pillars in place, but they were just rested really on the bedrock in very shallow pits. Um, and then they would cover them up and then build another one on top of it, over and over again, over this whole area. There's potentially between 40 and 50 of these so-called stone circles that were then completely covered up about 10,000 years ago after about just less than 2,000 years of use. So then it was completely buried. It was all reconstructed, then buried 10,000 years ago and completely forgotten about until 1996. Well, I think actually in the 1960s, there was the first... Um, idea that there might be something there was reported, but it wasn't dug up until 1996 by Klaus Schmidt and the German uh, Archaeological Institute. So, um, so that you know the fact that, that it was forgotten for so long, and it was also preserved as well. So we have this wonderful preservation of the beautiful carvings and style of the site, which um, you know, which somehow retained itself because it was deliberately covered up so long ago. And they have no idea as to what the purpose of it was, though. There's no, there's no confirmed purpose of it. I mean, it's, it's still the same with most stone circles, to be honest with you. But with Gebekli Tepe, there's so many kind of shamanic carvings. There's evidence potentially of astronomical alignments, which Andrew Collins has uh-huh. been working on uh, with um, engineer Rodney Hale. 
And there's all these carvings of these different types of animals, which are very strange. And some of them, the way they're placed with this sort of strange abstract symbols, suggest they were marking movements of the night sky. So it could have been a very early astronomical temple, but it could have been something else. It could have been, there's, no, there's absolutely no evidence of people living there. They didn't live anywhere near there, a few miles away at the closest. Um, but they know agriculture developed very close to that area. So it could have been an agricultural center where they could have even be charging the seeds there. They could have worked out a way of like developing this, you know, working with earth energies and fertility. Uh, as, one, as one idea anyway that the sort of, um, I've been sort of dwelling on for the last couple of years. Um, but there's no confirmed use. I mean, what, what the archaeologists say is that it's a, a ritual site where the site is um, for ritual purposes. People will come in from different areas uh, and carry out the rituals there. There's, and there's also not many burials there. There's a few bones here and there, uh, but no really large burials there. So it wasn't a burial site either particularly. Although they have found evidence of feasting there with other animals um, um, as well. But yes, it's, it's quite a strange site. It it's really is like um, an anomaly. It shouldn't be there. This, this was a time of so-called hunter-gatherers. And suddenly mm -hmm. they have this highly artistic, very abstract art kind of designed into the site. And very sophisticated stone technology as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those sites. I've been there a few times, and it just bewilders me. I think well, it, it like just, that. It 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 fascinated me because of all the stone circles, you know, all over the world. You know, you you see rings of stones. You know, and and I guess Stonehenge is one of the few places where there is a structure there that that you know comes close to kind of looking like a blacky techy, but 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 it's the T shaped stones that I, that I don't recall seeing any record of any place else. That, yeah, that's correct. Yes, it, it does have a sort of slight resemblance to Stonehenge, but there there are there is one other place I visited uh, last last year about this time last year is uh, Menorca, which is uh, one of the Balearic Islands in the Mediterranean, and they have some bronze age enclosures not this quite similar you know, a little bit similar to Gobekli Tepe with these one large T-shaped pillar in the center and some sometimes around the edge. But the difference in time is about six or 7,000 years between Gobekli Tepe and Menorca. And so that kind of intrigued me, like, you know, very similar design, not exactly the same, not as, not as sophisticated as Gobekli Tepe. Um, but much, much later. So, yeah, it's quite weird that you, you do find you, there are some similarities, but the, the, the amount of time between them is so large that you can't claim there's any connection between them. Wow. I know one thing that, that, that you said in, in your book on circles that, that kind of um, caught my attention uh, to, to something that, that, I had read elsewhere, you suggested that possibly there was a world culture at some time and that the stone circles um, were a part of a world culture so that, so that, you know, as time went by and, 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 and uh, you know, people migrated to other areas, they took, the, you know, that, that knowledge with them and replicated it all over the world. Klaus Dona um, 
in his, in, I, I, I'm pretty sure you know of him if you don't know him. Um, he's just the out-of-place artifacts. He's found um, 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 writing that is, it predates Sumerian, and he's found that all over the world as well. And he said the same thing, that at one time there may have been a global culture, you know, not just separate individual places, but all one culture that then got fragmented and separated, you know, I don't know, through through a mass destruction or, or whatever. But it does it does kind of feel like that at one time, maybe we were all one and then got separated free. I don't know whether, you know, it was it was, you know, uh, the shifting of the plates or what, but it does feel like at one time there was just one culture and that it was fragmented and and depending on where it ended up it was it it was evolved to the indigenous culture or the indigenous climate where wherever it was Is that a possibility well yeah, well, yeah i mean there's a, there's a lot of evidence of extreme similarities around the world it's something you know m- many researchers myself included have been looking at which which uh, that that make any sense? I mean, obviously we've got the stone circles, pretty much most areas, but you've also got things like dolmens, which we even get in New York State and and New England mm-hmm. as well as all over the world. Um, we have um, very specific thing. There's something that um, uh, the brilliant J.J. Ainsworth has been researching, looking at petroglyphs and symbols all over the world. And and so you find some of them go so far back, even like before the time of Gobekli Tepe. And so we have to like question what was going on. Was there like movement around the world? Was there kind of a global culture? Obviously, the A word Atlantis pops up when we talk about this. Um, and the idea people like Edgar Casey and other Plato and others have put forward is that there was even a landmass where this all came from. But I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure about that because I haven't found anywhere. But it seems like there was, uh, at that time, at the end of the last ice age, some kind of global awareness of, of different countries and uh, the building t- the building styles um, and certain anomalies around the world do seem to support that. I mean, you, you've got, I think, the best job in the whole world going around and, and hitting all of these ancient sites and being able to get a feeling for... Um, the energy that they, they emit. And, and one of the, the newest things that I've noticed is that because of our technology, they're, they're able to, um, first of all, ground penetrating radar is helping tremendously. And then, and then uh, our, our ability to, um, to test frequencies. I, I know that there was mention that you had been to Bosnia and, and worked with Dr. Sam uh, on, on the Bosnian pyramid for a while. Uh, yes, I did go to Bosnia um, to look at the look at the uh, the hills there in 2011. Unfortunately, um, I you know after you know spending a week there looking around, we didn't see anything that looked like actual pyramids or anything particularly mm-hmm. prehistoric or anything like that. So we yeah, that's a bit of a yeah. We're not, I'm, I, I can't really comment any more on that, but we didn't see anything there that confirmed anything to us, so we didn't we didn't continue with any research on that. Yeah. Well, they uh, you know run it have run into problems with the government. I understand in being able to actually excavate anything. So. 
that is probably something for the future to look into. I know that, that, you know, you've, you've, you've been, you spent time on the Giza plateau. You certainly been to Puma Punka. You've been to, and, and the, your book, the, the stone circles, you did a tremendous amount of work. Uh, just, you know, you must have spent a long time on this book because you you have you have isolated and you have pinpointed them all over the place. And the the ones that I am most interested in are the Avery um, Avery yes. ones. Um, I I've I've done some reading on it and and um, spoken to some people that have been there. And I I I mean you 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 chronicle it beautifully. The one thing that that I've heard people say is that they, they literally can put their backs to the stones and feel the energy. Did, did you ever mm. experience that? Yeah. I mean, it's a very energetic spot. Avery. Even though it's been turned into like a village with a church and a pub and everything inside it with main roads going through it, it's still got <laughs> some energy there. Um, uh, you know, surprisingly, you know, even Stonehenge has at certain times and other places that seem to be kind of, you know, modernized, but, one of the things about Avebury, which is potentially why it's energized, is number one, it's on the Michael and Mary energy lines, which mm-hmm. goes all the way across southern. And it's a, a sort of chalk ridge, so you get a lot of underground water and therefore electric charge moving through the land there. And all the stones are very lightly magnetic. They're sort of sarsen stones from relatively local area. They're all magnetically oriented to each other in the circle and down the avenues, as though the people who built it understood magnetism and understood how to kind of move, you know, sort of align magnetic oriented stones to one another. And there, there must have been a purpose for that because it would have been incredibly difficult. You know, it's almost impossible to do that by chance. Literally, a million to one chance you could do that. So they well, deliberately yeah. did that. Therefore. They're working with the magnetism, so you would get an energy thing, and that would, you know, if you charge it up somehow, maybe with ceremony, ritual, and various other, you know, magic and things like this, you would get some kind of energy system. And I, I think they were working with the natural earth energies, the underground water. They had sorcerers with them, and all this kind of stuff. So you would have an effect. And the fact that these stones are also crystalline. Is another aspect which is like which you know which uh, absorb information, memory, uh-huh. and things like this, and charge, and so you could most certainly, you know, it makes sense that these are energetic sites. Oh, absolutely! And now, I, how how um are the stone circles usually you know built over water or running water or or I mean, it just seems to me that these sites are 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 situated at energetic, as you said, at, at, at magnetic at points. So they would, they would have had no way of being able to, well, obviously they had a way, but how did they identify these spots? That's a good question. I mean, one of the ideas that you know some people have come up with, which I kind of agree with is the fact that they were people were super sensitive back then. I think there was no distraction. The only thing they had was the, the sky and landscape to work with. There was no mm-hmm. distraction. There's hardly any people. There's no TV. There's no background noise. There's no artificial light. So they were working with the stars, the sun, and the moon, and also the land. And they they were just naturally tuned in, much more intuitive because they could be because they had nothing else to do. They would just sit under a stone or a tree 
and observe for days on end. And they would probably sense energies as they walked through certain areas. They would also probably see natural earth lights, which do occur in quite rem only really nowadays in remote places because you can't see them anyway because of all the artificial light. And so they would mm -hmm. really observe which occurrences were happening uh, and realize that maybe they might have deemed that a sacred place and then built upon that accordingly. Um, and also they probably, they were obviously like geomancers and dowsers because number one, they had to find underground water to survive. Right. They had to use, use natural earth energies for fertility purposes to charge up seeds. It's the work of John Burke and others. And also to be in a safe space uh, away from, you know, prowling wolves and beasts that would probably come after them. So there's diff different aspects to consider, like just practical things, really, uh, when you think about it. But naturally, uh, I just think they were much more intuitive and could sense things in a much more profound way than we can nowadays. Yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. And, and I, you know, we the dowsing is probably something that, that did go on in, it probably wasn't called dowsing, but I would imagine that there there were um, people who were able to sense and, and feel the the um, earth energy. I know that a lot of the uh, a lot of the monasteries and a lot of the churches have been built along the um, the grid, the earth grids, and and so that there has to have been a way to determine where to place these 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 structures. Uh, the, I, the stone circles, especially the ones in Great Britain, because they seem to be larger than, I, than any place else. At least that's what it seems here. And, and certainly Avery is, is a good example of that. And, you know, I, it horrifies me to think that these kind of circles may have been everywhere. And yet we just didn't understand what we were looking at so that we knocked them down and, and you know, bulldozed them out of the way and, and you know, created patios out of them and stuff like that. It just, it seems to me that it's so important to get the message out there to people that structures like this have great meaning and, and, and there is a spiritual connection to them too. And that's, that's what really upsets me. The fact that, that stone circles, crop circles, stone chambers all have a special spiritual feeling to them that, that can help to enhance our own abilities and to destroy them takes away, you know, um, portals that we could, we could have used for our own evolution. No, I agree. Yes. Yes. I think there's, um, something much more profound than people may realize about these stone circles. Um, uh, I mean, there's actually strange stories mentioning like kind of portals. There's one story that I've, I've come across. I can't find the original source for this. I'm not sure of its authenticity. Where a bunch of people they went to Stonehenge. This is before they built all the fences and they had to pay to go in and things like that. Back in the 50s or 60s, probably. And a bunch of people camped in the stones. All this light phenomena was seen. Uh, next thing you know, there's puffs of smoke, and half the people have disappeared, and the other half half are running away, screaming. <laughs> kind of, um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I can't find the source of that, but it's like literally people are said to have disappeared in stone circles. So that would suggest uh, something quite strange and bizarre. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, but I think just the circular form as well, it does you know represent that really, and so um, there could be something in that. Well, it takes you back to sacred geometry, too. 
and and you know it's it's the circle is it 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 represents the whole and you, you look at Mandela's the the circle represents the whole of the spirit and you you take a look at crop circles and very much you know they are usually usually circular in shape not always these days but they they started out that way um and and when you look at at um at especially the the the, the circles represent a whole and and in my experience, you know, I, I've worked with sacred geometry with the cards that I did and stuff like that. So that the whole encompasses not only um, it, it, it encompasses the whole wholeness, but it also creates a doorway through which you can go if you have the energy and the strength and the, and, and if you have the the ability to connect to what is beyond that that circle that 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 circle that has been defined and it it just i know that there have been you know obviously rituals that have been conducted there over the years i'm wondering if the circles were there and then they decided to do the rituals in them or if it was important for the rituals to have the stone circles and i know there's no way um, to determine that <laughs> yeah yeah yes it's, it's it's like what came first you know the the stone circle or the crop circle or the ritual, but yeah, I, I understand it's um, it's a strange. I mean, one of I mean one of the ideas which is uh, sort of touched upon there is the idea that um, uh, when they first were deciding where to put stone circles, what may have occurred there first was a crop circle, and that's why they decided to build the stone circle there because they were certainly there was agriculture going on you know, back in the Neolithic into the Bronze Age times, so uh-huh. growing crops. It's, there might have been crop circles appearing, and then they would then build <laughs> something there to mark that sacred spot. And uh, and it kind of makes sense when you look at Avebury and Stonehenge because there's so many crop circles appear right in this area, right next to these sites. It's quite bizarre. And so, um, but yeah, but I think these sites were built to last as well. So they were used over and over again by different epochs, different generations of people with different religious and spiritual and ritualistic ideas. Um, so they're getting constantly charged. They're like, they, and they never seem to go. They're always there. They're like, they're like immortal. They're like um, a symbol of our quest for immortality. Um, and so I think there's more to them that, than people realize. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. And I just, I, I think that that when I when I read through the stone circles, I kept getting the feeling that that you know these are monoliths. These are huge stones, and the people of the time it would have been so difficult for them to place them the way that they're placed. And, and of course the, the theory of giants comes up here and I know you're a, you, you, you and um, Jim Vieira wrote the book on, on giants. And I'm wondering, could that, I guess it could be a possibility. It's, there's no way of ever knowing, but they, they are so large that, that, that people of the time would have had such trouble erecting them and and getting them to the sites because stonehenge i I believe some of the stones there you know were were um where they came from was quite a distance away from where they were erected that's true yeah Um, a lot of them came from very vast distances if we just look at stonehenge as an example 
Um, there's two types of stone there. There's the sarsen stone, which comes from about 20 miles away. And then there's the there's the uh, blue stones, the spotted dolerite, which comes from the Preseli Mountains in Wales. And there's actually a tradition at Stonehenge. Incidentally, the first ever recorded name of Stonehenge was actually called the Giant's Dance. Or the, or the Giant's... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so slightly different variations on that. So this was recorded in the 11th century, in so 12th century, in the history of the kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth, and and in the stories in there go back talk lot, lots and lots about giants. And one of the stories is that originally the stones that ended up in Stonehenge were bought by giants from North Africa over to a place called Killaroos in Ireland, where they were constructed. They were there for thousands of years, and then. During the 6th century, this doesn't really make sense in reality, but in the 6th century, um, King uh, Ambrosius got Merlin uh, to collect some stones from the Killaroos in Ireland, and he used magical powers called gears to transport or levitate them over from Ireland to construct them on the ge- uh, to construct them on um, Salisbury Plain. Um, so it's quite a strange convoluted story that stretches over thousands of years about how and where these stones came from but giants were involved in that original uh, kind of story and the fact that the giant's dance name was used up until the Saxons changed it to Stonehenge which basically means hanging stones does suggest there's some some link with giants. Also um, there's been a whole bunch of giant skeletons we've found in the area reported going back over a thousand years up until about 300 years ago where between 9-foot and 14-foot giants were unearthed within a few miles of Stonehenge, often within the mounds. Um, and so, we, oh, wow. you know, the next... The, the book we're working on now, uh, Jim and I, very, we're slowly working on it. I've been sort of focused on the Stone Circles book, is um, uh, Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain, because we've got hundreds of accounts now all over Britain, which suggest the same phenomena was happening here as it was in North America, which is the, the, the focus of our previous book. And also the earliest uh, pictorial depiction of Stonehenge uh, was, was, again, in the 12th century by um, a poet called Robert Wace and his version of the history of the kings of Britain. And it shows a, 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 something like a 14, 15 foot giant lifting a lintel, one of the, the sort of uh, horizontal stones into place. Stonehenge with Merlin and some other guy, probably King Ambrosius, advising him, you know, <laughs> guiding him about where to put it. And so you, you get, you do get these stories. Um, and so that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. All over the country, in Britain, we have uh, very strong traditions, very strong folklore uh, that was very strongly in the, you know, consciousness of people, um, going back thousands of years potentially. Um, and 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 then you have to you know how how they actually moved the stones as you you mentioned a minute ago, perhaps they hired the local giants to do the heavy lifting and quarrying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is, um, no, it sounds strange, but I've, I've got a feeling know, that's how it was. Yeah, well, it's like you, they're, they're I, of, yeah. No, no, I was I was wondering if if you were familiar with the um, Britain Wiener Cave in Bavaria. No, I don't know about that. No. Um, Britain Wiener Cave in Bavaria. They they have records. Um, in in fifteen thirty five, a group of the local men went into a cave there and they found massive bones of giants, just massive bones. And um, oh. it it was uh, there's a it, there's a 
uh, writing uh, of the of the entire journey in in the archives in 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 Bavaria that tells the entire story of of their journey into the into this mountain and and the bones and everything else and in um, seventy six um, an explorer went in and and um to document it he found that that you know there there was very little still there but but there were still bones there and then in in um let me see um in 1792 somebody went in and then uh then there was a um a combat photographer that went in and um his name was Danny, I forget the last name. Anyhow, he went in and filmed it, and he brought out some bones, and they were they were they were dated way 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 back. So um, it's it, and what's interesting is the location of the cave um, had been in World War II. It, it, there had been a concentration camp there, um, and there Danny Danny was in the in the military, and he went in because he, he had heard that there had been a concentration camp there, and that he wanted to see if he could get bones out to see if they could DNA identify them to notify people, you know that you know here's here's the remains of your whatever, and um, they found even more ancient bones there as well, and and it was it, it, the place was full of bones, and. They did bring some bones out, and and but what what but what's what happened was that it was a NATO um, encampment that Danny was connected to, and they were using the cave. Uh, it, it was in a in a range where they were doing live testing of of um, bombs and stuff, almost as though you, they were intentionally trying to cover the cave up. But the cave was definitely there, and it's, it's something you might want to look into because it looked. It looked very fascinating, and I know Patrick was constantly trying to get somebody else to go in, and you know he just passed away, and there wasn't time to do it. But but the 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 bones there, they said you could put one of the skulls over your head. You know they were that big, so they must have been huge. So you know it. Um, there and the um. Uh, the video that Danny did is on my website. If you want to, you know, check that out. They did they did videotape their their journey into the cave. So, um, but yeah, it you know it, it, the the giants you know are fascinate me. But I want to get back to to the circles. Have you ever done any ground pad and training radar on any of these sites? No, not personally. No, I know you have to be um, a trained archaeologist to do that kind of thing. But uh, there, there has been some, some. You know, I keep, I keep an eye on, especially in the looks. I live near Stonehenge now, so I keep an eye on the local landscape, uh, what's going on around this area. Um, and they keep finding things and they're pushing the dates back further and further. I was just in the Amesbury History Centre today, which is the local town to um, Stonehenge, and. They were telling me that, you know, recently they, they found yet more evidence at a site called Blick Mead, which pushes the date. They've done some ground uh, testing here, and they're pushing, now pushing the date back to over 10,000 years of continuous occupation up until mm-hmm. when Stonehenge was used. Um, it's incredible. It's the oldest, uh, you know, the oldest settlement in Britain continuously used. So it's strange that I'm sort of living within that. It's quite odd. Um, but... Yeah, I think I think more research is being done. I think 
stone circles are being taken seriously. I mean, the best research done on them really was by Alexander Tom, who was an um, Oxford-trained Scottish uh, engineer who was a lecturer at Oxford University. And he went around about 300 stone circles over decades of time, uh, recording their shape, size, and their astronomy accurately, really accurately, and devised, you know, realized the ancients were using a specific measurement system, what he called the megalithic yard, which is 2.72 feet. And also they were very advanced with astronomy and geometry. Um, and so it wasn't just a random selection of stones in a circle. Um, but there has, I mean, one of the things they found with like Stonehenge and Avery and other sites, for instance, is they found lots of evidence of compacted ground. So this this suggests that there was like dances. There was a lot of people in ancient times visiting these places um, and rituals and ceremonies and things like this going on at these sites. So we know that um, the ground penetrating radar has revealed things like that, which is quite intriguing uh, in itself. Well, now um, I've not been to Stonehenge, but is it is it on uh, a mound, or is it on flat uh, level ground? It's not flat level ground. It's on a slope, actually. <laughs> it's quite strange. It's on a slight slope, um, but they, you know, it's actually uh, level flat at the top of it. So it's quite strange the way why they've chosen that spot. But for some reason, that was the best spot. Probably the astronomy and the energy there. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really on a mound. No, there are lots of mounds around it. There's like over a hundred mounds in the surrounding area um, that were made. Some of them are ancient, the long barrows, but most of the, the round barrows um, are Bronze Age, which would have been a few hundred up to you know 700 years later. Some of them, but this is where mm-hmm. some of the giants were found. So it's, it's quite bizarre. Um, now yeah. it. Isn't there? Isn't there? Um, you know, I and I may I may be misquoting, um, but but isn't there um, a thought that perhaps there might be a burial of some sort at at Stonehenge? There are there are stories about burials. I mean, they did find some bones and skeletons actually in the ditch, the henge around, which is the ditch, the circular ditch around the stone circle. But mm-hmm. they think they were made maybe later. They may have been. They could have been a sacrifice. Some people say, um, but they don't. It doesn't seem like it was technically the actual site was a burial place. But all the mounds in the surrounding landscape were. Most of the Bronze Age burial, Bronze Age mounds are burial mounds, um, and so and they found some amazing things in there. They found very tall skeletons. Even even the bush barrow lozenge and the gold that was found, which is just just over the road from Stonehenge, which is part of the main complex. Um, they found a, a, quite a tall skeleton there with beautiful, beautiful jewellery and uh, these sort of golden lozenge breastplates. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of burials going on around it, but I don't think that was its original purpose. I think it had a you know, much more meaningful purpose than that. Well, you know, it, it just, to me, the the mounds here in, in the United States, you know, that were... Um, when they dug up, when they started to dig them up and they discovered that they were burials, you know, they, they took the artifacts and they got rid of the bones. And it's, it's just, it, it, I, before you came on, I was telling people how horrified I was that, that as far as, as preserving these bones and these artifacts, um, 
that, that we haven't done that. We, you know, they've been taken as oddities. People have used them for doorstops and then they've disappeared. And, and it, it horrifies me to think that, you know, we have destroyed a, a part of our history that is so very important, at least in Great Britain, um, in the UK, you, you, you have, there has been something of a, an understanding that this is part of history and we need to preserve it. And that's not the case here. Um, but but you, you keep you've mentioned a couple of times the magnetic anomalies and in a lot of the stone chambers here in in the northeast there are magnetic anomalies that are in the entrances to some of the chambers. Um, how do how do they do that? Do they how do they create those magnetic anomalies? Well, I think most of them are natural anomalies which they probably observed by, you know, spending time there. You'd also get with these, especially a neg- negative magnetic anomaly, you get sometimes earth lights associated with it. One of the mm-hmm. things John Burke came up with, one of the things John Burke came up with was the fact that these anomalies are often right upon what's called a conductivity discontinuity, where two types of geology meet. And the telluric current oh. and the underground water move through these different, different um, medium media they actually shift in between magnetic and electric and often you get balls of light occur on the surface where this happens so yeah they probably spotted it by seeing strange lights sort of shimmering at that particular spot i realized that's where we we, that's where the energy is coming up that's where we're going to trap the energy so we build the entrance there all the energy gets trapped inside there and that's where you place your seeds that's where you sit and meditate to get altered states um, and so on and so forth. And I think that's that's evident all over the world. I think it was just one of those, one of those almost like a technology that you know that people were working with back then. And I think you know if you if you actually think about it and meditate on it, you realise that this that's what people would do probably. You know, if that's all they've got to work with, they're going to work with whatever natural energies, natural phenomena they can, and try and harness that. Um, for you know themselves, and I believe they were shamanic cultures. They were, if they had an altered state or an, you know, some kind of experience with their mind altering, you know, at these particular spots, they would think this is a this is a sacred spot. We must do something. We must mark this. We must work. We must stay here and work with this energy or these or whatever you want to call it. And so I think you know I think that that was the point um, into a lot of what they were doing. Well, that make that makes perfect sense sense because when you when you think about it i mean today to 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 walk out at nighttime you have you know you have um glowing from the house lights you have street lights you have all sorts of things going on you don't have perfect darkness but back then when there wasn't electricity when there weren't you know when there wasn't the technology there is today um you you had perfect darkness except for of course the lights in the sky so that being able to detect uh glows from the ground or or any of that would would have been far easier than it is today and um that makes perfect sense if i saw something coming up out of the ground like that i would be inclined to want to um you know once i decide once i realized it wasn't going to hurt me um i would probably want to um encompass it or or trap it somehow and and 
I know in the chambers, they say that, you know, seed that has been left in the chambers for a certain amount of time has greater abundance when it's planted and it's, it stores things and it, it preserves things so that, so that it would make great sense that, that just from seeing that happen would, it, it would make it almost a magical place. And and probably I yeah. would have done the same thing. I would I would have tried to trap it, you know. Um, but yeah. but the these the stone circles, to me, um, and 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 in lots of places there there are Avery especially. It has it has, I mean, for, uh, people. Well, first of all, let me go back to your book because it's called Stone Circles. It's by Hugh Newman, and it's by. Um, wooden books. Um, it is an amazing collection of the stone circles with amazing graphics in it. And, and it's, it, you've done a phenomenal job here. I really, I'm, I'm very impressed with the amount of material that you have in here and you make it, uh, you make it simple so that, so that, you know, you, you can grasp what you, what's being said and it triggers, I think in consciousness in, in many, in many cases, you know, hidden memories in people's consciousness that, you know, it's like, yeah, I, that makes sense. Uh, you don't, you, it's not so long that you, you get bogged down and, and yet you give amazing information here. Um, also, I wanted to take it back to the ley lines, which figure into the grid patterns, which, of course, was your other book. Um, but I highly recommend both these books because they, they are an amazing wealth of knowledge put into a very small package that, that will open you up to wondering and then going around looking for stone circles <laughs> for sure. Um, it it. In, in Great Britain, you're, you're lucky in that you've got so many stone circles in so many places that, that you know, it's obvious that something is there here in this country. Um, I don't know. Are there any sto- stone circles still standing here in North America? There are a couple. I mean, one of them is, um, is the Burnt Hill Stone Circle in Massachusetts. It's on private land, unfortunately, so we've never been able to access it, but um, uh, Jim and I are, are working on that. Uh, there's another one in a place, oh, I forget, I think it's the New Hampshire, oh, where is it? Um, it's basically, it's called the Druid's Hillstone Circle. Let me just check the books, I've completely forgotten. Is that in that American is. Stonehenge? Is that? Uh... It's not American Stonehenge, but it's not far from there. It's about an hour from there. Maybe forty-five minutes. Uh, let me just check. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I don't, I don't have full details on that on me. But the Druid, the Druid Circle is near. Uh, I think it's a place called Pelham in New Hampshire. It's not. It's, it's not too far from uh, America Stonehenge, but it's kind of hard to find. It's actually in this park, um, this sort of state park where they play. They've got you know kids play area there now they've kind of reconstructed it but interestingly it's on the edge of this reservation um and the reservation we know were a certain tribe where giants resided there and we feature that in the giants on record book actually we have a little discussion about that because that's uh, it's quite intriguing that there's a potential sort of oval shaped stone circle and it's in the area where giants you know may have been involved in its construction 
you know, I, I just, I know that in, in, in North America here, I, and, you know, I can only speak for New England because that's, that's the extent of my, you know, travel and, and investigation in the monoliths. We have a lot of the balanced stones too, and those mm. have survived. And, and, you know, they, they are remarkable in that, that they are huge stones that, that are balanced on, 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 on tips that you can't knock over. Cause I did try. Um, I, I know Patrick and I went to see several of them and, you know, it was like, Oh my gosh, that thing's got to come tumbling down in a heartbeat. And it was about as solid as it possibly could have been. And you, you begin to wonder how do these things happen? I know um, with one of them, I actually even had um, a metal detector with me and I thought, you know, there, there have to be steel rods that are, you know, that, that are holding this in place because it couldn't possibly maintain this balance without, without some sort of support, but there was no metal at all. And again, it, you know, the, the, the giants come into play here. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen a couple of those balance rocks. They're very bizarre, um, the way they just somehow sit there just perfectly and you can't really budge them. Um, I, I kind of think they're, they're, they're really quite cool, actually. <laughs> you, know, you don't get too many of those in Britain, though. Uh, it's, it's a very North American thing, I find, um, obviously in other parts of the world as well. But, yeah, I think that uh, could be an indication of, like, you know, is that just nature doing that or is that extreme positioning, like trying to get it correct, you know, spending days trying to get it bang on? I mean, no one really knows. Well, if you, the, the one that, that we saw, I think it weighed as much as a locomotive and it was resting on just the tip the tip of the rock and the whole thing, it was huge. And, uh, you know, I said to Patrick, you know, try and knock it over and he wouldn't go near it. And, and I pushed and it was, you know, you know, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to knock it over. And, you know, he said, what happens if you knock it over? How do we get it back up? And <laughs> I said, chances are, I'm not going to knock this over, but I had to push. And, you know, uh, it, they feel so it, it giants had super glue or something because I can't imagine, I can't imagine that glacial anomaly would create something like that. It would seem to me yeah. that, that if a glacier was moving, that it would, that, that it would have shifted the stone off. It wouldn't have put it on. So, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, it's just, and, and for those of you, you know, Google, Google balanced rocks and, and hit images because you'll see some, some phenomenal examples of things that I can't explain. And, and, and yet they're there and you can walk around them. You can touch them. They're not protected. There are no gates around them. They're just sitting in state parks for the most part. But, um, and again, the element of magnetic energy comes in here. And, and I'm wondering because most of these rocks most of these rocks and, and most of the rocks that, that uh, the stone chambers are made out of, and I'm not sure about, about the rocks, uh, the um, standing stones, but they, they appear to, a lot of them here in this country, anyhow, are granite. 
So what, what is the composition of the stones, most of the stones in, that, that you have researched? Are they, are they granite or are they slate or are they sandstone? What, what's the composition of the stones themselves? Well, you get, very, you get a lot of variation, to be honest with you. Um, um, you know, for Stonehenge, for instance, is like a sarsen stone. It's like a type of sandstone, uh, mm-hmm. quite, quite, quite hardened sandstone. Uh, and then you get the spotted dolerite, uh, which comes from uh, the Pacelli Mountains, which is like a blue, very crystalline stone. And then a lot of the sites, obviously, are granite. So you have very high level quartz, up to 55% quartz. Um, and then you have, I mean, even the sarsens uh, have very light magnetic effect. Other stones, like you get red sandstone, which you find in places like, you know, Tiwanaku and Pumapunku in South America. Um, they have much more magnetic because they've got iron in them. And so you get different variations. And I think people, you know, I think it got to a point where they were picking and choosing what stones they wanted because they knew they could transport them from anywhere they wanted. Uh, but a lot of the sites just use the local stone that's available. Um, so, yeah, it depends, really. I mean, all different, every type of stone has been used to create a stone circle. There's even, a, there's even like a white crystal stone circle in Cornwall, which I visited in January with um, a good friend, Sean Kerwin. Uh, I think it's called wow. Dillow Stone Circle. Hello. And, it's, and it just glows white in the right light. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and so, and yeah, so you, you have all these different variations. So, yeah, it's quite intriguing. Yeah, because I the you know the stones here in New England basically granite, um, and you know I because they have they have the quartz crystal in it, and and quartz crystal is is you know good. It's a vibrational energy to it. It 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 can be used for. I mean, I mean, as as an empath, as as a sensitive, you know, anything with quartz in it, of course resonates to you on a spiritual level and i was just wondering if there was something that was you know consistent but it doesn't sound like it is it's it sounds like it's you know what whatever is is handy or or you know within a couple hundred miles um they they picked up do, do you get the feeling that that any of the stones have been in any way um formed in in other words did they did they just stick a stone up or did they carve it or did they in any, in any way alter its, its um, shape or size? Yes. Yes. You, you certainly get that. I mean, most of the stone circles in Britain are rough hewn stones. So they're just stones. They found pretty much as they were uh, and then placed them, but Stonehenge, you have these very neatly cut stones with mortise and tenon mm-hmm. joints on the lintel and the, and the up top of the uprights. So they were cutting and shaping these specifically, carving them, um, so that it was quite sophisticated, much like we find with the stone technology in Peru and, Peru and Egypt. But there was extreme carving going on in a very sophisticated way. There were elements of that here, but only really, you don't get too many like that. It's mainly stone hens you get that. Um, there is a small amount of evidence of some of that in Orkney, where with the sort of blade, like razor-like stones, very thin. Yeah. Uh, but they do, they do form kind of naturally like that as well. Um, and you get some kind of rounded stones that look like they may have been carved, you know, or, or kind of polished in a certain way. But even the blue stones that came from Wales, Stonehenge, 
they've they've, they've been cut and shaped they because they're all they're a uniform size uh, all within the inner kind of horseshoe shape like the oval within the within the main stone circle so yeah so i think that there is there are elements of that but not too many in britain whereas if you look at gebekli tepe in southeast turkey again oh, every stone yeah. there is carved specifically you know in, into these t-shapes they're like abstract human forms with belts and thin arms, very alien looking, very abstract art style. And every stone there has been carved. There's not one rough hewn stone on the whole site, thousands of stones there. And so we have to kind of question that really. Um, and uh, I think there are a few examples around the world where there are some kind of stone carvings. Uh, I know there's, you know, in Portugal, at Cromlech Elementaries, there's carvings on the stones, like spirals and different shapes and the, the shepherd's crook. We have examples mm-hmm. of that in Britain, uh, but most of the Brittany stones do appear to be um, mainly rough hewn. But when you're getting into like you know the different aspects of the megalithic culture, I mean, like one, one example is the Scottish stone spheres, hand and a sort of tennis ball sized stone spheres that are carved out of all different types of rock into these geometric forms that are about being found all over Aberdeenshire, up in Orkney. Couple, about three of them have been found in England, but mainly up in northern, north, uh, east Scotland, um, and that proves they were able to carve and manipulate stone in a very precise, very geometric, precision way. Um, so even though many of the circles that they were found near are rough-hewn stones, there's evidence that they were certainly working with stone. I mean, there's some exa- some examples of stone circles in Aberdeenshire. They're called the recumbent stone circles. Some of the some of the main stones are lying on their you know lengthways. Um, they look like some of those have been shaped. So there are examples like that. But Stonehenge is the ultimate. Really, it's the ultimate stone circle because it's unique as well. There's nothing like Stonehenge in Britain apart from Stonehenge. Even though there's a thousand recorded stone circles, it's the only one like that with the lintels with the precision carving with different stone circles within different stone circles. So it really is quite unique and remarkable in its own right. Oh, absolutely. You know, when you are, you are obviously um, a megalith, a maniac. And um, because you wrote that, I, I'm not coining it. It it was in your bio on Amazon, but but if, if, if you look at the stone megaliths, around the world you you see the the rough stones as you have in great britain and then you see the stones like like um like giza and you know teotihuacan and then then you know you you see pumapunka which and go blecky um um pumapunka even more so um, and and you see uh, an evolution of from the from the very rough to Pumapunka for me is the most precisely cut of all the stones and and I'm just going by the pictures I've seen I don't know I don't have personal experience of it but it seems to me there was an evolution from the rough to to what looks like it's laser or or something like laser sharp edges is there a Am I right or wrong? Yeah, no. In some cases, you're right. But in other cases, the high level, the sophistication came first. This is what – it's a bit of both. In, in, in England and Britain, you could probably see 
a development, you know, some places you can see that probably in Brittany as well. But when you go to like a Beckley Tepe, it just came out of nowhere. Very sophisticated mm-hmm. stonework, amazing styling and construction, sophistication, 12,000 years ago. Um, and, in, and in Pumapunku and Tiwanaku, there's very sophisticated stonework there, as you mentioned. Um, but it could be that that is the earliest, they're the earliest sites there. There's a big debate about this going on because they've recently been excavating Pumapunku, which I've been, I go I go there every year uh, to sort of check things out. And we're heading back there in a few weeks, actually. Um, is the fact that they dig, the more they dig, they realize there was some cataclysm that covered it all up, which must have been 10,000 years ago for oh, that to wow. happen. So it's big question marks that even the Inca, you know, their stonework is not as good as the stonework that was there before them which is the, the Viracochan Tiwanaku culture. Um, uh-huh. So that's very strange in its own right. But I think, I've got to be honest with you, the best stonework I've seen, which is, which is on par with Puma Punku, is in ancient Egypt. It is insane. I mean, I've just got back from there. I've spent three weeks in Egypt um, with the Resonance Academy and uh, Nassim Harriman and uh, J.J. Ainsworth and the Kemet School. Um, and the the more you look, the more you look deeply, especially into the, the ancient sites, the Giza Plateau and the Assyrian, the Abydos, it is incredible, the sophistication. Even up until like, you know, late dynastic times, the stonework is remarkable, utterly remarkable. Um, no one really understands how they did it unless they had computers and machine machine tooling machine oh yeah no the 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 hieroglyphs in in some of the obelisks yeah i totally agree with you it's it's so precise it's like it's been stamped in somehow or i mean it's just it's it's so sharp you could almost cut your finger on it it looks and yeah so 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 I'm kind of, you know, I know that you can't carbon date rock, which which is too bad, and, and carbon dating apparently is not as good as one would have thought um, as far as the dating process goes. But I, I was just, you know, really curious as to what was the earliest, how far back does it go, and then does it de- decline and then incline again and then decline. I mean, we're talking, I mean, 10,000 years, I think we got to be talking more like 30 or 40 or 50,000 years, to be honest with you. That, That's that just my possible. There, there, are, there are some speculations about that, actually. Um, there are some ideas floating around because when you look at the, um, the Edfu building text and you look at the uh, Abydos king lists, they talk about, you know, civilization going back 40,000 years, just in Egypt, not in other uh-huh. areas, just in ancient Egypt. Um, so you have to kind of question that. And then, and then you have the dating done on the Sphinx enclosure where by Robert Schock and John Anthony West and other people, where they found that the dating there could go back 10,000 years just by the weathering, which uh, is very interesting in its own right. And if that's the case, then it's very likely the pyramids were built back then, possibly, They've done some sonoluminescence dating on some of the pyramid stones, the, the casing stones of the, the lesser pyramids of the Giza Plateau, the granite, and in the Valley Temple, I believe, which give potential dates of only around two and a half through to 3000 BC. Um, but this doesn't mean it's not conclusive uh, because they may have rebuilt the out, outer, outer mm-hmm. casing stones of the there. Um, but even those dates are 500 years older than is accepted, so they weren't built by the pharaohs that were told built them. So that's that's really oh, intriguing yeah. in its own way. 
when you look at the Assyrian, which is like this underground mega megalithic temple, it looks a bit like Stonehenge, but much more sophisticated. It's 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 it's, it's so deep in the ground that it must, they it must have been built when it was ground level. And so we're talking tens of thousands of years ago that was probably built, and that was completely covered up. I don't know if it was covered up deliberately. I think it was just had rubble and sand blown into it over the millennia. And that is remarkable. Uh, some of the stones there weigh 200 tons. They have the polygonal puffy style stonework like we find in Peru. But, but then again, so does the Giza Plateau. Um, uh-huh. And so we question what's going on here. Um, not only have you got potentially extreme antiquity and very sophisticated stonework, you've got the styles, which are the same as you find in Peru almost identical and you can't you cannot be dismissed how similar they are so um i really noticed that i mean i've been there a few times to egypt but i really noticed it on this trip uh having spent sort of three weeks there investigating um and so yeah it's, it's stunning it's like i think people overlook egypt because there's so many sites there it's such a vast civilization that lasted for several thousand years but there's still deep anomalies there that have not been answered, that have not really been, you know, you know, fully answered, and it's causing a huge amount of controversy all around the world. Well, they, they've also they have done some ground penetrating radar in in Giza, I know, and they found that there are tunnels and labyrinths underneath the plateau that 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 they have yet to to really investigate thoroughly. So. That's correct. Yeah, there's um, there's something called the Osiris shaft. Uh, there's there's mm-hmm. many many tunnels between the pyramids. There's there's lots of underground water, obviously, but there's also the, the what's um, Andrew Collins discovered this huge cave complex, a natural cave complex that goes all beneath the pyramids. He wrote a book about it, in fact, as well. And so there's a, there's a lot more going on there, and and I think there's clandestine activities going on there as well, where people are, you know very high level people are doing their own excavations, their own investigations and so on and so forth to see what they can find under the Giza plateau. So, yeah, so, yeah, so I understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you've got that. Of course, of course it's well. secret. And nobody knows about it. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Except it's going on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But but I, I think the, the exciting part about all of this is that um, history books say, yeah, there are pyramids and, you know, they were burial places for pharaohs and let's go on. And the reality is, no, they weren't. And, and you know, when you even look at the Great Pyramid, th- there is no hieroglyphs. There's no, I mean, it wasn't a burial chamber. I'm not sure what it was. I know there's a sarcophagus in the king's chamber, but... Um, it, it just doesn't feel as though it was meant to be a burial place it, there. And, and, you know, the, the theories as to what it was actually for are, are as great as the stars in the sky, just about, but um, we have so much yet to learn from antiquity that, that it is mind boggling. And the fact that there isn't, enough focus on it really bothers me greatly because because it's our past and if we don't take if we don't understand our past how can we have a future that that is full of knowledge and wisdom yeah i mean i think with the the giza plateau i mean the the great pyramid you mentioned is is so strange it's it's like it's um i mean 
after being inside it um, and going, you know, and, and all around the outside of it as well. It just seems like it, it really does feel like you're walking into some huge machine. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a temple. It doesn't feel like it's um, a palace or a temple or a, or a tomb. It's got this whole other vibe going on with it, which um, which I find very, very strange. And then there's a work that's been done by Chris Dunn and other researchers who, who pretty much proven that it could have acted as a machine to create energy, you know, for different types of energy, you know, absorbing mm-hmm. seismic energy, telluric currents, earth energy, even downloading cosmic energy. And so, you know, the jury is out as to its real purpose. But the fact is, it's, it's like... It's so bizarre when every time I go to the Giza Plateau, when you just see those pyramids, you just you just cannot comprehend what the hell is going on here because it's so <laughs> they're so big, they're so precise. And you imagine what they look like with the casing stones on as well. Like the, the the Great Pyramid would have had white shiny limestone casing, perfectly placed over the whole pyramid. It, it was almost like glow in the sunlight. It would dazzle you. The moonlight it would dazzle you for miles around with a gold capstone on top. And it was completely hermetically sealed. There was no mm-hmm. way in. Uh, and there was no secret passages into it either. And then the other pyramids, the, the second pyramid, uh, Kefri's pyramid, and then Mercury's pyramid, smaller ones, they were cased in granite. Incredibly. And, they, and the granite is puffy, polygonal-style granite with all these little nod, nodules on it, like little, little protrusions. That just like you find in Peru. So that alone, that much granite, which is transported 600 miles from Aswan, um, is just, it's just bewildering when you imagine what it would, it would have been a white pyramid, possibly a black pyramid, because it was like dark black granite, and then a red pyramid, which is red granite. So imagine seeing those things on the, floating on the Giza Plateau, and it was all surrounded by water, all these water yeah. tunnels and all the the Sphinx and the Valley Temple and the Sphinx Temple were all filled with water potentially as well. And you could sail mm-hmm. up to it from the Nile. And then they also found these huge Lebanese cedarwood boats on all different, just buried under the ground, completely buried like tombs. The uh, cedarwood boats that were seafaring boats of wood that came from Lebanon, going back 2,500 BC. So, oh God, it's such a mystery, that place. It just bewilders me well when napoleon hit there um it was still covered by the casings and apparently um patrick found in the record someplace that the casings had hieroglyphs on them but they weren't hieroglyphs and um apparently napoleon had somebody with him that that transcribed all of them and those no i'm they don't know where the notebooks are but of course there was an earthquake and the casings partially fell off and then and then the Egyptian people used the casings to build their their cities. So we've lost whatever was on the outside. But apparently, uh, according to something Patrick found, that the the this limestone casings actually had had writing of some sort on them that looked like hieroglyphics, but weren't. And this this man spent a couple of years copying it all down in notebooks, and the notebooks were preserved, but. Nobody knows where they are. That, that's, I've heard, that's something we discussed while we were there, actually, with some of the um, Egyptologists we were with. And unfortunately, there's only one account of that. 
Um, and this was, I think, this was quite late. This was like, you know, as you mentioned, it could have been, I think it was a bit before Napoleon, um, in the sort of 1500, something like that. But okay. in the 8th century, in the 8th century, and in the 12th century, there were two different accounts of uh, Arab, uh, you know, people going there. One of them actually blew, you know, dug their way in and actually found a way in for the first time. Uh, and the casing stones were all still on, but there's no, there's no, mention of any hieroglyphs on them or any carvings on them at all and then a few hundred years later someone said there were hieroglyphs on them and so there's a bit of confusion about that and all the ones that are still there and all the ones that are known are being moved there's no hieroglyphs on them now and so there's a real there's a little bit of confusion about that but just the fact that I mean, because there's no you don't really get that with these three pyramids there's no hieroglyphs originally with them i don't think yeah um, and as you said there's no evidence actual burials although each of them has got sarcophagi in them which is strange they've got like these what look like granite sarcophagi um where it looks like people should have been buried but they weren't you know so either looters took the bodies out if there were any um but certainly i don't think they would just even if they were used as tombs just to speculate that wasn't the only purpose for them. There was clearly some other much higher purpose. And it could have been functional. It could have been practical. It could have been a technology, uh, like a spiritual technology, as well as a practical technology for the planet. Because there's one, one piece of evidence that they actually absorb seismic energy from the Earth to reduce earthquakes. That's one of the functions of pyramids. This is something that Chris Dunn mentioned in his book, I think. Um, and obviously you have the kind of... Um, actual kind of uh, wisdom and math, mathematics and geometry and all the secrets encoded within the structure itself, once you decode it uh, by just what is there, what you can see with your eyes, it's, it's just astonishing. Now, I, I, it's said, and, and you know, I, I've, <clears throat> I've looked on Google Earth, um, that the sides aren't aren't actually straight; that they they are curved in slightly, so that so that to pre- prevent so that it really isn't four sided. It's an eight more of an eight sided pyramid, the Great Pyramid. That is correct. Yeah, that is correct. There were some aerial photographs taken by the military around the time of the equinox, I believe, where they they realised that was the case. So that would have been the case with the casing stones as well. It wouldn't have just been like the, what was left, which is like the sort of mm-hmm. inner, the inner kind of part of it. Um, but yeah, and you can see that in the shadows. But the thing is, it only lasts for like just a fraction, like just a few seconds or a minute, where you actually witness that. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like it's, it's almost like a clock. It's like a sort of a solar clock which does that twice a year on the equinoxes. And so that is incredible in itself. So it could have been designed for that purpose, partly as a great celestial kind of clock, um, you know, looking at different time uh, time periods and recording that with the shadows um, and with the placement and with the way the, the light, you know, with the polygonal walls, you have all these sort of, when you get certain light on them at certain times, you get this on the, in the Valley Temple and on the two lesser pyramids, um, when the light hits at a certain angle at a certain time of year, you actually start seeing patterns and shapes emerging on them. You get this in Peru as well on the polygonal walls there. So there's something yeah, about the shadow. You know, they're very into the shadows. Well, yeah, that's that's is that's similar to the. Um, it's in South America where where the serpent. Um, the serpent stare. I know the the, the serpent. 
shadow falls and and um you see a, a snake or stairs or something i i i remembered yeah. there was something with that's a chichen itza that's uh yeah that's in central america in the yucatan peninsula that's one of the, the key pyramids there so it's um yeah the, the pyramid that i believe there on the equinox as well the same similar things happen with the you have the the shape of the um sort of snake moving down the pyramid with the big snake yeah. heads that's carved in rock <laughs> bottom, which kind of only emerge on the equinoxes. Yes, same kind of principle. So again, these pyramids were like celestial kind of clocks and solar clocks. And I think I think this is evident in many sites that people don't realise, even at Stonehenge, even stone circles as well. And this is something that the brilliant Terence Meaden has been working on. He's a, um, a professor and he spoke at our conference last year. And he's going to actually speak at our conference next year in May. Um, because he's brilliant. In it. And he, he looks at like the shadow play of monoliths and the way they move around during the year and how they have fertility symbolism encoded within the way they move, like phallic symbols and all this kind of stuff. Um, so the same principles are at play. And I think, again, this harks back to the idea that the ancients were always working with what was available to them. So the movement, the only light they had was really from the sun and the stars and, so that, and fire. So they were like working with that. So any movements, they were working with that into whatever they were building. So they were working with the shadows, with the light. And it was, and it was one of the most important aspects for them. Well, you know, you, it, it often is said that, excuse me, that they were a primitive, they, the, 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 these were primitive cultures and yet, it feels as though they had they had architects that were geniuses, and you know you begin to to, to reconsider about you know these these were again you come into you know was it Atlantis stuff you know because it feels as though the technology that has been utilized and and especially with with um, the the stuff in Peru. Uh, you, you look at those stones and you know that they couldn't possibly have been cut. And even Egypt, come on, copper tools didn't carve those stones. I'm sorry, it just didn't. And and so you wonder where did the technology come from that 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 helped them to to put these rocks together so so closely that you didn't need to have any sort of um, any sort of cement. Or, or anything like that, and, and yet I think haven't they haven't they found that there was some sort of um, polymer of some sort that was between the the stones in Egypt? Well, that's the idea put forward by uh, the engineer Joseph Davidovitz, and he claims that all the stones on the pyramid, all two and a half million of them, were. Uh, created using you know uh, like like ancient concrete and the limestone there, uh, but the problem is most of the stones are all slightly different shapes and sizes, so they would have had to create different shapes and sizes casts for all of them. And the problem is you actually go to the quarries there and you can see where they cut stones out and then they used in the pyramids. So I, I I'm not too sure about this, this um, casting the stones uh, rather than carving and shaping them from quarrying um, because there's a lot of evidence they just they did they did the classic quarrying and cutting and shaping so so there's a bit of a debate about that there's no no real cement was used um, that I'm aware of in ancient Egypt um, especially the pre-dynastic stuff and the early dynastic stuff and the pyramids but but you never know 
they don't know there's such a high level of technology they were working with all these different ways of working with stones yeah no it's fascinating and and i keep getting drawn back to to puma punka because those stones i mean i've seen the right edges i've seen the you know the the carving and the carving and and it it does make you wonder just what kind of a an instrument created them I mean, they almost look like Legos. And, they do, and yeah. You have, you have H blocks there, especially that they kind of have that look. But so much has been taken from Puma Punka and Tiwanaku that it's it's troublesome. It's difficult to decode anything from it. The only one, the only stones they haven't really taken are the largest ones. They they couldn't move, and so there's hardly anything left to work with. But what they're finding there is. Is, is this high level of technology again, this sort of laser-like precision, uh, which shouldn't be in Peru and Bolivia at any time. There's no evidence of that kind of high level of sophisticated technology or certainly a culture that could have used that. So it's utterly bizarre. This is why the connection with Egypt fascinates me because the, the same technology is in place there, the same quality of stonework, the same style, and the same precision. We even find, you know, the same symbolism, the same, um, you know, evidence of even, you know, look at Thor Heridal's work of like traveling across the seas. Um, mm-hmm. And they found like, a, you know, South American cocaine in some of the mummies in Egypt and things like this. And so we know that there's there's definitely connections between these ancient cultures. Oh, absolutely. And now I'm just curious with Puma Punka, have they done any archaeological digging there or are they just working with whatever was on the surface? No, they're, they're digging there. They've been digging there for a few years now. Um, and it's actually they, they, they employ the local Aymara people, the indigenous people of the area around Lake Titicaca to do the digging. But they claim that it was their ancestors that built it, that they hold on to that claim. And so they're worried that whenever they find anything that suggests outside influence, they might not present that or publish that. So there's a bit of politics going on there, like, like we find in many other places. Like Even Egypt is the same. They don't want any uh-huh. evidence. They're not indigenous Egyptians that built these sites. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of problem, but there is more research. So every time we go out there, we find more research has been done, more digging has been done. And they've realized that Puma Punku is a huge pyramid. Um, it's a huge step pyramid that used to that had a walk that had a kind of like a jetty going into Lake Titicaca, oh, much wow. like the much much like the Akapana pyramid at uh, Tiwanaku, which is just you know just the same site really. So it's just next to each mm-hmm. other, and but it's much bigger. It's a much bigger kind of step pyramid. It's quite a low pyramid. It's not like a pointy pyramid like we find at Giza or anything like that, but. Um, but yeah, so it does suggest that it was a very major. It was almost like a palace. Some of you know, it would have looked amazing. I've seen some of the reconstructions, and it is remarkable what it would have looked like if everything was still there and had been taken away. And and it was taken away by what governments or museums or whatever. Yeah, just local people. Useful, it's usefully useful shaped and cut stones to build their homes with and churches with. <laughs> I mean, you, you, go, you go to the church. You, you, seriously, you go to the church in uh, Tiwanaku Town Square, 
they've got two of these massive Atlantean statues outside the front. And you can just see the stones they've taken from Puma Punku and Tiwanaka and built into the church. It's oh unbelievable. You walk, walk around the church and it's like, oh man, you can just see what they've done. It's just terrible. Um, and it's such a haphazard construction compared to the, what the original site would have looked like. It's a bit of a joke. What what do you think? You know, I I know you don't know, but what could have possibly happened at Puma Punka that could have dissembled whatever was there? I mean, well, obviously, look, it looks like a yeah. It just looks like I mean, it's something Brian Forrester and and I have been looking at for years. So I've been going there since two thousand and seven. Um, it looks like a cataclysm, like some kind of wave came from Lake Titicaca and there's because they're both covered in mud and muck. They're totally covered. Um and and now just realizing that there's actually another pyramid under Tiwanaku covered in mud. And they just started to dig that up now. You know, it's bizarre. So uh and Puma Punku they thought was just a few stones on top and mm-hmm. you know, this area but it was just what was you know, luckily was preserved on top of the pyramid. And so, yeah, so there, there was somehow they were covered in thousands of tons of mud, uh, for, probably from the lake. Something happened, some kind of cataclysm, something hit the lake, an asteroid or something. Or there was an earthquake and it caused a wave, uh, you know, through the area. Or there was massive flooding and the lake flooded uh, violently, um, something like that. I mean, but you find that evidence all around Lake Titicaca, all different sides of the lake, the Peruvian side as well. We have sites like Silastani, which are right next to uh, uh, another lake, next to Lake Titicaca, which was originally the same part of the same lake. And the same thing looks like some kind of something's hit it from a certain side, from a certain angle. Um, so it's probably the same thing. I think there's there's a study that shows that a very large meteor did hit um, by the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, and it, that, was, yeah, it, it yeah, hit. Yeah, that's right. Well, that that may have caused something like that, but you know, you just you you get so curious as to okay, let's I I I you know I'm one of these that I want to see a timeline. I want to see when you know these things were built and these things were built and these things were built, and and so you can work on a timeline and understand the culture, the evolution, the de-evolution of what was going on. I, I it to, to have all of these amazing structures and not even have a chronicle of what came first because it would make it so much more easy. I mean, it won't explain. I mean, there is, there is, there is, yeah, I mean, there is a basic chronology that, that is, you know, the traditional like archaeological viewpoint. I mean, there's a whole... Tiwanaku, they believe, was built no earlier than 500 BC. That's the earliest date that allow for that. Generally, they think it's like 100 AD onwards. Um, mm-hmm. However, there's a site called Chirapa, which is uh, near there. It's just a bit past Lake Titicaca, the opposite, towards the lake from La Paz. Um, which is an earlier site, which is a similar, like a sunken temple with megaliths. It's even still used today, interestingly. We're going to try and visit that on this trip we will do next month. Um, and that dates back to about, again, five or 400 BC. But 
we're not sure about this because there's there's evidence of agriculture on the, the you know in the Andes Mountains and near Lake Titicaca that goes back ten thousand years. There's, yeah. There's archaeological evidence. There's carbon dating of occupation there going back ten thousand years, and yet the sites don't seem to be that old uh, according to the traditional dating. However, there was a chap called Arthur Poznanski. Uh, I think he was a Polish-American or Austrian-American or something, back in the 1930s, I believe, who did archaeoastronomical investigations all over Tiwanaku and believed that he, you know, through the, what he believed was the correct archaeoastronomy, dated it 17,000 years ago. That was according to how it would have functioned as an astronomical temple back then. And so mm-hmm. that puts it in a whole different perspective. Um, but then you start looking at, you know, the technology there as well. I mean, they were using uh, very sophisticated stonework again, you know, very sophisticated. They're, they're these keystone cuts. They were, they were creating molten metal alloys for like a, bro- like a bronze type material from five different metals. Some of them that were imported from the other side of the Atlantic to create these keystone cuts to, cre- to join these stones together. And they were definitely creating molten metal. In that, in that case, you've got to heat up the metal to, you know, a very hot temperature, which was unknown until the last few hundred years. Um, and so it's very bizarre the more you look into these sites, you know, whether it's the Giza Plateau, whether it's Gebekli Tepe, or whether it's Pumapunku and Tiwanaku. No, it's just, it, it's mind-boggling. And what's really fascinating is that when you, when, especially when you're looking at South America, when you realize that, that only a small percentage has been uncovered from the jungle. That, that you know, there are still sites there that, that haven't even been excavated or, or gone into, that there is so much more. I mean, you know, yeah, you've got, you've got, um, you've got the ones that have been developed and, and have been cleaned up and tourists go and walk in and everything, but, but there are sites there that haven't even been touched yet. Uh, which you know surprises be- surprises me because with all of our ability with satellites and <clears throat> and they can even utilize satellites to do um, radar that will take away the vegetation and show what's there. I, I, I suspect we know where there are other uh, sites that that could be of value, but but for some reason they aren't being excavated at this point in time. Well, yeah, as they've been clearing the Amazon of the rainforest, for you know, which isn't a particularly good thing, they've actually been finding huge geometric earthworks and evidence of civilization going back thousands of years, all through the uh-huh. Amazon. It's quite bizarre, um, and so that that suggests, uh, you know, there was a lot going on there for very, very ancient times. There's even evidence of giants there. There's evidence of red-haired, fair-skinned tribes. The Amazon uh-huh. women, obviously, there's all this kind of stuff going on there. They've even found a stone circle at the entrance to the Amazon from the Atlantic in Brazil, uh, which we feature in the book and uh, the Americas uh, spread. And um, and so, yeah, the, the list goes on. And also, when I was in um, the Tiwanaku Museum, which is in La Paz, the, the capital, um, uh, the area of uh, Bolivia, there I found what appeared to be one of these Scottish geometric stone spheres in which was found near Lake Titicaca 
which I was like, what the hell? Because I've been researching these spheres. I've written a big article about it for ancientorigins.net website. Um, and I couldn't believe it when I was there. And I actually spotted this one that was clearly, it just looked like it had come from Scotland. Um, so there's a bit of research needs to be done here, but there's, there are evidences of you know migrations out of Orkney to different parts of uh, Europe at least. Which, but if there's a connection with South America, that that would kind of make sense in a strange way, because there are connections there. There are actually stone circles around Lake Titicaca, a place called Celestani, which I mentioned earlier, um, which seem to be astronomical as well. So yeah, there's there's more research needs to be done on the diffusionism and different uh, you know correlations with different cultures around the planet. I, I really like the the theory that there was at one time a global culture because it, it makes sense to me that the similarities are just too many, that that at some point in time there was a global culture and that, that for whatever reason it was fragmented. Um, I want to get back to the giants, though, because it is – I'm glad you're doing another book on giants, by the way. I think the, the last one you did, The Giants on Record with, with Jim – um, was fabulous. I, I absolutely thought it was an amazing book, and I'm so delighted the two of you are working, you know, to take it further because I think that that again is another part of our history that that needs to be recognized because um, it, so many people just don't understand how how very many there were. It was a large culture. It was a civilization of giants. It wasn't one or two. It was thousands of them. And, and I know here in the United States, I mean, just, just the records of those that were dug up, at least the ones that you can see if you do a quick search, I mean, thousands of them. Um, and, and it feels almost as though they were here before those who, who, became our native Americans um, came across the land bridge. So I, it, and that's just my feeling, but it seems to me that the giants were here before the, those who became indigenous came into this, to this area. Yeah, there's a good, there's a good case for that. Certainly. I mean, I, I mean, this land bridge thing is controversial nowadays uh, because uh-huh. it seems like uh, yeah, that's a, but we don't know. It's, it's, there's still a lot of debate about that. But there's there's evidence of human occupation in North America and back, going back a hundred thousand years now. Um, yeah, there's certainly occupation going back forty thousand years on the uh, on the Catalina Island and the islands of the coast of California. Even in, in New Jersey, they found a skull which was a hundred thousand years old. Uh, things like this. But the, the, thing, the difference between North American giants and other giant cultures around the world is that in North America, there were like tribes, there was like a civilization of giants. It was serious. There was no messing about. There was, it was like a major population, of, you know, often of giants. It wasn't, in England, it's a bit more sparse. They're not quite mm-hmm. probably smaller tribes maybe and things like this, but in North America, it was a whole different world and they were around for thousands of years. There's evidence going back at least 10,000 years there's evidence in the oral traditions that Vine Deloria Jr. and others have, have put together, uh, placing them at the time of the megafauna, which would have been 13,000 years ago, before the so-called Younger Dryas impact event would have happened. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no, there's no archaeological record to back that up, although there are um, 
we do have the you know spirit caveman we have you know evidence of um you know very ancient skeletons which have been proven to be at least 10 to 12,000 years old in North America and so yeah i'm intrigued by that but you get, you get the same you get similar traditions in Mexico going into central and south america uh in peru you get it you get this in bolivia with the whole story of viracocha he was he was like the great god of the Andes. He emerged from Lake Titicaca again onto the island of the sun, where there's actually a temple there called the Chicana Ruins. And he was said to have created um, some giants from the earth, and they, they became known as the Stone Giants, which are traditions we find in North America. Uh, and these stone giants created the megalithic sites like Tiwanaku, Pumapunku, Cuzco, Saxiwaman, and Machu Picchu, and so forth, along this what's called the straight line alignment called the Path of Viracocha. And then he had to destroy them with a flood to kill them and get rid of them because they became violent, aggressive, uh, cannibalistic. And um, and they were just became really bad people basically. So then he had to recreate um, other another race of humans. And this is the same story we find in the Bible basically. It's something that right. I'm sure Pat, Patrick looked at this kind of thing as well, um, where we have the Nephilim that were destroyed that had to be destroyed by God, floods and this that and the other. Um, after they the Watchers and the human female women, you know. Um, uh, bred them and created them. So we have the same kind of stories uh, emerging in different parts of the world, often related to cataclysms and giants. Um, so yes, it's quite bizarre the more the more you look into this. But I think that the giant thing, especially in North America, needs to be looked at by academia. It really does. They need to just deal with it and like accept it's probably a reality. They like, they need to kind of take it on board. Especially as a Smithsonian were involved in finding so uh, many of the giants, you know, and yeah. then they covered it up. Um, it's it's a re- it's really strange, isn't it? It's it's one of the most compelling stories I've ever ever heard of in my life, uh, specifically North America. Even though I'm not American or anything, but it's just unbelievable. It's like it's like a whole part of human history completely eradicated from the, the, the historical record. But there's, there's tons of evidence to suggest it was real. Amazing. Oh, absolutely. And you know they don't they don't even go into um, in the history books the copper mines um, in in Minnesota and Michigan that have been utilized for the last nine thousand years, and mm-hmm. they have records of it. You know they've they've carbon dated stuff. They know that those that 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 metal has turned up in Rome and all sorts of other places. And so, you know, it, it's kind of like, come on, give us, give us a history that is, I think what has, what has always upset me is when you talk about ancient history, everybody immediately goes to Rome, Greece, and Egypt. And the, the reality yes. is North America has ancient history as well. That goes back to those yeah. same time frames, or maybe even earlier. And just I agree. Yeah, I think I, you're on it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think I think America is often overlooked when it comes to that, even by the academics of who live in North America. Um, mm-hmm. It just needs to be addressed and like taken seriously because. 
there's this theory which we, we postulate in the book, uh, the Giants on Record, but we put in the final chapter. It's a little bit controversial, but it's been known around known since the 1980s, which was first really coined by, um, oh, I forget his name, uh, Jeffrey Goodman, I think, is an archaeologist. And he, and it's basically called American Genesis, about how humans may have not originated in Africa, they may have originated on the American continent. Um, and and uh, since then, it's been developed into like speciation has occurred on different continents around the world, not just Africa. And this this puts a whole new timeline and a whole new perspective on things. Where well, in that case, how did we just suddenly emerge in different parts of the planet? Um, and then you look into the oral traditions. You look into good translations of like the Book of Enoch and the Book of the Giants and so forth. And it does seem like there's some kind of just emergence of humans on the planet in at a certain epoch. Um, it's very bizarre the more you look into this, especially when you look at the oral traditions. I think that's where the real, the real nuggets of wisdom and truth are. Uh, and especially with the North American tradition, there seems to be like they really wanted to hold on to the exact wording of stories passed down from generation to generation, precise, you couldn't change one syllable or one word, it had to be exactly the same because the words carried the power, it carried the truth, and you couldn't mess with it. And, uh, and those that knew how to understand it properly would get the full story. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of waffling a little bit myself now, but anyway. <laughs> no, I know, it's it's... You you sit back and you look at it and you, you, you logically sit back and you just let it sink in and you realize something is wrong here. <laughs> and and you know, we have Monk's Mound and that's that's very, very old and uh we've so many mounds we've destroyed. And and mm. it it's it's I know in some of them um, they found they found pearls and they found gold and they found coral and you know they 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 have found uh, I, I think they there there was a giant someplace that was surrounded by seed pearls I mean just surrounded by it so that so that there is there is a richness here and a, and a culture that we we absolutely don't have a connection to and we should um, and then of course you've got the the red hair giants in in is I forget Paiute the Paiutes in Nevada the the red hair giants their story about how they wiped them out um, by putting them into a cave and setting fire in front of the cave to kill them and while that was a legend for a long time when they went in and started to mine the guano they found the arrow points and then they found the bones and of course the yes, bones were sent to the Smithsonian <laughs> so. Do you do you have any knowledge of or an opinion of the um, the cave that, that theoretically was found on Kincaid's cave in Colorado? I think the the cave where it it's 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 it is a story that was reported in the newspapers, and apparently he was on a. Uh, a job from the Smithsonian. He found this cave that had Indian statues and it had mummies in it and it had Egyptian artifacts. And the theory, the, the, the story goes that David Hatcher tried to find information and he was totally shut down. And the area where that cave is supposedly is in the Grand Canyon has been, um, you can't even fly over it with airplanes anymore or helicopters. 
I, I've heard, yeah, I've heard something about it. I spoke to David about this actually a while back. Um, I think this was the so-called was this the Egyptian artifacts that were found in the Grand Canyon, reported originally yeah, in 1909, I believe, or 1905. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. yeah there's not been able to find anything more from that. People have tried to find that, obviously, but um, it's, it's out of bounds for starters. And interestingly, a lot of the name places of that part of the Grand Canyon have Egyptian names. Um, yes. If you look, if you, if you just look Google it, you can find that <laughs> it's quite weird um, that you can actually find that all the names are given specific Egyptian names. So hang on a second, why would they do that? Um, so no, I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. I think that need, I mean, someone needs to go there. I mean, it may have been completely looted. It could have collapsed. You just don't know. You know, no, no idea what really could have happened there. Yeah, it just uh, from from what reading I did, you know, the the caves themselves would have held like twenty thousand people, and the the level of the Colorado was probably up to wherever the opening of the cave was when when whatever it was was created. So, yeah, a lot of speculation. I mean, and you know, you you leave it to our imaginations, and we can we weave all sorts of stories about it, but. I mean, we've got enough conspiracy going on already that we don't need more, but it just, um, it, it does boggle the mind and the newspaper reports appear to be, unfortunately, they appeared on, on April Fool's Day. So, you know, you, you wonder, was it just some great big joke, but I don't think so. And, and you know, with all of the other stuff going on with the giants, with all of the discoveries, with all of the things that, 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 that we have not had access to, to do something like that, to, I think that the reason they, they stopped the um, airplanes and helicopters from going in that particular area is they, because they said the condors were nesting there, but that's a bunch of fooey, you know, I don't, I don't buy it for a minute. So I think the American public, the public, the humanity as a whole is so much more aware and so much more intelligent and and insightful these days so that you can't give us those stupid stories and expect we're going to say, oh, okay, and walk away. We're way too curious. And and happily, there are people like you around. Um, We have a few minutes left. You want to talk a little bit about the the upcoming Megalithomania conference, where it's going to be and who's going to be there? Uh, Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. The the next Megalithomania is, um, well, actually before Megalithomania, just uh, in in the next week or so, on November the 4th, we, myself and Andrew Collins, organized the Origins Conference in London, and actually, speaking of extreme antiquity, we have Michael Crimo who's going to be discussing his work on forbidden archaeology. Uh, and Andrew and myself are speaking there. Jim Vieira is coming over as well, amongst others. Uh, and then we do our big megalithomania conference every May. Next year, it's May the 12th, 13th. Uh, we've got a whole plethora of speakers and researchers coming from all over the world. Um, we also get private access to Stonehenge on the Friday before the conference, and we do like three extra days of tours after the conference. So people want to come over for like a week and hang out in Glastonbury, the hippie town central of uh, Britain, and they're very welcome. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, people can just check out megalithomania.co.uk or hughnewman.co.uk. It's a bunch of stuff there. We're also doing tours. We've got a big tour to Peru. It's completely full now, unfortunately. Um so that's it. We're doing one. we do that every November, 
We're going to Mexico, actually. Olmec and Mayan Mexico in January with me and Brian Forrester and Jim Vieira. They're going to be running a tour there. People can join us for that. We've got a whole bunch of other stuff going on all next year, so people can um, take a look and get in touch. Well, I, I have to tell you, I'm just so fortunate to have met you when you did Megalithomania here in Connecticut, and I'm so very grateful that you took the time to um, to do a show today with me because um, it's you know you 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 are connected so much to everything that warms my heart that it's just a delight to be able to get you on the radio. <laughs> Oh, that's a pleasure, Barbara. Very, very, very happy to come on and just have a chat with you as well. Really, it's been a while. <laughs> it's it has been. It was 2011 when we when we did Secrets of the Stones, and that sent me on on you know not only the stone fascination but the giants as well, which which continues to both of them continue to be something that that absolutely draw my attention and and uh, you know. Keep raising questions as to okay, what is our real history and where did we really come from? And you know, not that not that we'll get all the answers, but every now and then we get a grain of truth that 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 plants a seed of wisdom in humanity, which is so encouraging. So I thank you again for being here. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule, and um, I will try real hard to get you on again in in a in a six month to a year's time frame to see if we can catch up with you again. Sounds great, Barbara. Thanks very much. You're very, very welcome, and thank you for being here. And thank you for everybody for tuning in. I so appreciate your time, and hopefully we have raised some questions that will send you on a journey of research, hopefully, and greater understanding as to the the culture and and the magic that is held within the stones and, and what is yet buried beneath the ground that can enlighten us to a future that Hopefully, we'll be even later. Good night now. Good afternoon, actually, or, or wherever you are. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye now.